My people, welcome back. You're listening to Rooted Souls. Today's episode is spirituality and activism, integrating healing, peace, and justice. With me, I have Kazu Haga. He is the founder of the East Point Peace Academy. He is an experienced trainer, certified in several methodologies of nonviolence and restorative justice. Having received training from the elders, including Dr. Bernard Lafayette, Reverend James Lawson, and Joanna Macy, he teaches nonviolence, conflict reconciliation, restorative justice, and mindfulness in prison, jails, high schools, youth groups, and with activist communities around the country. He is also the author of the book, Healing Resistance, A Radically Different Response to Harm. I met, I met Kazoo at my first Kingian nonviolence training 10 years ago in Oakland, California, at the East Bay Meditation Center. Around that time, I also went to California's San Quentin State Prison for a prisoner-organized fundraiser for the Amala Foundation's Global Youth Peace Summit. This was a peace summit for kids whose parents were incarcerated in effort to support them to not follow in their parents' footsteps. And these events were so influential for me as a person. So I really wanted to talk to Kazu today to reunite a decade later and thank you again, and also collaborate to bring messages of peace and intentional action to more ears and hearts. Thank you for meeting with me. Welcome. Yeah, it's really good to be here. I can't believe it's been 10 years. That's wild. It is, but it feels like yesterday. Yeah, it's so does. nice to see you. Likewise. So why is this topic relevant? Why was it relevant when we met? Why is it even so much more relevant now? Well, I think for me, it's always been relevant. And I suppose for, for any human being, because, you know, I, I came from a background where I experienced a lot of harm in my childhood and in my, in my home. And as someone who not only saw a lot of things breaking down in my home life, but also, you know, when, when I when I moved to the U.S. when I was seven, for a long time, I lived in a neighborhood that was almost entirely white in rural Massachusetts. And so I feel like I know what it means to not belong way more than I would ever like to, you know? And so having experienced the things that I experienced in my home life, really experiencing a lot of isolation and loneliness in school and, and, and throughout society, I feel like it's always mattered, right? To create a world where people can feel like they belong, um, where people uh, can live with peace, can live with equity. And so it's always mattered to me. And I think it's always mattered to all of us because as a species, we've always had that kind of um, fear of isolation and, and violence in our communities and all that. But I do feel like in the last 10 years, there's a way in which things have escalated so much. Um, just what's happening in our political world, particularly what's happening with the climate crisis um, I think we're also witnessing um, a lot of like collective trauma responses that is pouring out of us as a species mm -hmm. because of everything that we're witnessing with the pandemic and, and, and everything. So I think, yeah, this work is more important now than it's ever been. Everything you said was so artfully concise. I agree with all of it. And I've shared with you before that I've seen a lack of spiritual and emotional health in the activist communities and a lack of intentional action and um, advocacy in the spirituality sector. 
And so I'd love to talk about what's lacking, where there is strength and, you know, what we can identify to heal. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that is slowly starting to shift. You know, when I started to get involved in activism back in the late nineties, it was a culture where even singing songs together was just out of the, the, the picture altogether. There was no conversation about spirituality or, or, or anything like that. And I think over the last, you know, 10, 12, 15 years that has been shifting and there's a lot more openness to engaging in conversations about the intersection of spirituality and social change. And a lot of movements are talking about that and, and the intersection of healing and social change work. Um, and there's been a huge resurgence of song culture in movements, which I think is a really important kind of bridge um, where a lot of kind of spirituality can, can come into movement spaces. But I still think that even in those spaces, it oftentimes feels like, okay, we need to go here to do our spiritual practice so that we can be um, grounded so that we can do the activism over here. And I think a lot of the work that I'm interested in now is, you know, one of the, the million dollar questions that we've been asking ourselves in the work that we're doing recently is, what if we viewed nonviolent direct action as a modality of collective trauma healing? Like not that we need to do the healing work and the spiritual work so that we can go do direct action, but to do like to, to, to view direct action as part of the same work, right? When I was at Standing Rock, a lot of the elders kept reminding us, you know, when you go into town to do those direct actions, remember that you're going there, you're going to a ceremony, mm. right? And so really building a culture, a movement culture where we don't see the separation and we see like systems change work and direct action work as spiritual work. And so if we viewed organizing work and direct action work as ceremony and ritual, then how might we reimagine what direct action work could look like and what is the work that we would be doing to prepare ourselves to be able to do that work um so yeah i, I think you know i i've been really inspired by the more and more openness that we see in at least having those conversations and i think there's always more growth edges for us as movements as you talk about that the imagery that comes to mind is fabric weaving together in a braid it feels like the lineage and presence and expression through song helps to integrate generations and communities. Um, and really, I mean, even singing is somatic experiencing. It's helping the nervous system, but also, you know, I haven't been in those circles, but I know that when I was back in some programs I did in California, songs were introduced as um, something to honor our ancestors and to honor the, the lineage. So I, assume there might be some threads of that there. And also um, just recognizing that it's not separate, like you said. So if we are bridging the two, it strengthens both because there's more embodiment, there's more cohesiveness. And um, it's, I'm so excited and inspired to hear you say that's what's showing up. And having you come to Rooted Souls, my intention is to bring more awareness around activism and possible activism into the spiritual space. Because I think that in this time where you were sharing that we're oozing trauma, um, we can get really wrapped up in our own narratives and our own experience and lose 
um, motivation and purpose with the community. Um, we can really sink into our own dark holes and really succumb to apathy. So what can we do? Yeah, you know, it's something I've been thinking about a lot too. Just what is the intention of spiritual practice? And I, you know, I'm, I'm in a lot of Buddhist spaces and there's an interesting thing that I think has happened in Buddhist communities in the West, because when this Eastern practice and worldview merged with Western culture, which tends to be a little bit more individualistic, I think we see in a lot of Western Buddhist spaces, a real emphasis um, on the idea of like individual liberation in meditation communities, yoga communities. These are things that we do for ourselves to become healthy. And I think one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is the idea that the idea of individual liberation is a myth and a delusion. It is one of the biggest delusions that we've been sold. And I think it makes sense that a lot of people kind of crave this idea of individual liberation in a culture like the United States. But if you really understand Buddhist Dharma and Buddhist teachings and really understand the idea that we are all interdependent, then there is no such thing as individual liberation, right? There is no way for one person to become liberated in a world where there is so much suffering and there are unjust systems that perpetuate suffering at a much faster rate than practices like meditation can liberate people on an individual basis, right? So I think we need to understand that if we want to be liberated, then we need to be working for the liberation of all beings. And, you know, and, and, and at the same time, for activists to understand, for people who are in, in, involved in social change work to understand that if we don't have some sort of, and, you know, some people might not resonate with the idea of spiritual practice but whatever you call it practices that help you heal practices that help you ground practices that help you remember to breathe in the most difficult moments practices that help you remember that we are all part of something greater than our individual selves um, I, I think if we're not doing that work, then it's so easy to burn out because doing the work of social change is really hard and we're constantly swimming in stories of oppression and going up against um, systems of harm. And, and so we need to be engaged in practices that keep ourselves grounded and that keep ourselves kind of centered on healing. Amen. I remember when the Occupy movement had just started in Oakland around the time that I visited you with the workshop people were so angry. They were so angry and rightfully so, but it was the dominant field. And I burnt out, I collapsed. And it, the same thing happened years prior when I was a big activist for agriculture and um, the environment. And it just feels like you're yelling at an echo chamber and eventually you give up. And so this, just this idea of cohesiveness and groundedness and, and, being connected to the community and connected to our own healing, it seems now so clear. It's the only way because uh, we're only as strong as our weakest link. So if we're holding onto something with rage um, and we're you know, letting it poison our soil, it's not sustainable and we, we do burn out. And I, I think about our generation um, and how entitled so many of us feel to our individualism, to our uh, luxuries um, and 
even through the pandemic, I feel it's been very clear uh, that so many people feel entitled to um, their individual health um, without thinking about the community. And so it's it just feels more surfaced maybe now than ever. And with the rise in anti-Semitism and racism and hate, uh, hate crimes, it just, it feels like it's getting louder and louder and louder. Um, and for a lot of us, we don't know what to do. And so I, it sounds like getting together and talking and having dialogue is step one, um, educating ourselves about the history. Um, perhaps we don't even need to reinvent the wheel, like learning from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and so who is participating? Who's not? I don't know if you can identify that, but just to start to paint a picture for our audience, what's going on in, in the justice sector? Where are we today? And, and how would you like to see us move forward? Uh, that's a big question. Um, well, one, one thing I want to say on anger before we, we, we move forward is that there's so many ways in which anger is a gift, right? Because it points to our deep somatic knowing that something is wrong. And that's important. Yes. And I think oftentimes um, when there's actually a teacher, uh, a, a Buddhist teacher um, who used to be in the Bay, Sean Fate Oaks, who says that oftentimes when we experience anger, we tend to repress it or we tend to project it outwards. And both of those responses to anger is a way to try to get rid of it. And we need to learn to be with it and to honor anger more. And I think that happens a lot in kind of nonviolent spaces and spiritual spaces too, is there's almost a judgment cast on anger. So we actually don't do a good job being with what is. And so I think we actually need to do a better job in activist spaces because there's so many things that people should be angry about. The question is, what do we do with that anger? Yes. In a lot of activist spaces, like you said, we let the anger become the motivating fuel, which is not sustainable. But in a lot of other activist spaces, we do a lot of spiritual bypassing and pretend that we're not angry. And that's not helpful either. And so I think what we need to do is to be more explicit in creating spaces that are explicitly held to honor and express our anger and our rage but to do it in a safe container where we can move through the anger, right? So that like being in a direct action space is not a, a, a safe container for us to be processing our, our unprocessed rage, right? Because then it gets poured out into the streets and that's not safe for ourselves and it's not safe for the people around us. Um, but if we can create spaces where we can really honor our anger so that we can move through it, there's always important things beneath the anger that we need to be be able to feel and to be able to see right there's a, a, a teaching that says anger is a secondary reaction that your body has to hide deeper emotions and so once we can honor that anger it, it oftentimes points us to a deeper thing that we actually need to be feeling um, so i think that's one of the things that i would like to see in movement spaces is more spaces held carefully and skillfully where we can express and honor our anger and our rage so as well as our grief, you know, because grief is another emotion that I think we're all feeling that we just don't always have skillful spaces for us to express it, especially mm -hmm. in community, which I think is so important. Um, 
But to get to your larger question, I mean, it's a big question. I think one of the things that I'm seeing a lot in activist spaces, there's um, there was an article that recently went viral, maybe, if you can call it that, um, called The Elephant in the Zoom. And it talked a lot about how so many large progressive organizations are currently completely incapacitated by internal conflict. Mm. And we're so busy fighting each other that we're actually not able to like organize around the larger issues. And I see that happening everywhere. I think anyone who does like consulting work in social justice groups or who does trainings, who does mediation or restorative justice work, like we're really witnessing just escalating conflicts everywhere we go. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we are living in such traumatizing times and there's both things that are happening that are triggering generational trauma all over the place, but there's also things that are adding new trauma, right? Um, climate crisis, pandemics, all of these things. And so there's just so much trauma being awoken all over the place. And when we are, when our old traumas are being triggered, we're not in a good place to engage in conflict. Right. right. And so I think conflict is escalating all over the place. And so I think one of the things that I'd really love for justice spaces and movements to really focus on is learning more about and committing more to our own individual trauma healing work as a way to contribute to greater healing, not not again, not for our individual healing, but as a way to contribute to greater healing and also learning the skills of navigating conflict in healthier ways, because if we can't be right with each other if we can't be in right relationship with each other then there's no way that we can ask the world to be in right relationship with itself absolutely big tasks yeah huge yeah just we need to be putting out fires everywhere no pun intended <sighs> so that feels very clear um something that i see a lot of is people claiming that they don't watch the news anymore because it's too upsetting or they don't wanna uh, stoke the fire. They, for some reason, they think that if they're paying attention to it, it's gonna get bigger. Um, obviously that uh, there is some truth to minimizing exposure to things that are dysregulating your nervous system. But if all of us sensitives are not paying attention to what's going on, then what? So part of my bigger question was, you know, who who is being involved, who isn't? and I feel like having the sensitive people, the highly sensitive people engage is who we need and is often who's tapping out. Do you have any advice or perspective on how to provide solution there? Yeah, I think there's two things. One, I think we live in a world where we're just constantly um being bombarded with terrible news. So I think there is value in taking an intentional break from that, not um, like giving up, but taking an intentional break and telling yourself, I am doing this for my own self-care. I am going to go into the woods. I'm going to recharge. But again, not as a way to escape from what is happening in the world, but as a way to resource yourself so you can continue to be with what is in the world, 
right? And and understanding that like the the way that the media industry is structured, it actually does present more horrible news, um, or at least like like more horrible news than it does present good news because there's like beautiful things happening that they never talk about, right? Totally. So I think it's important to have balance and to to take breaks when you need and to draw boundaries and understand what your own limitations are, but if we use that as a way to try to escape, um, that's not sustainable, right? And and at the same time, for people who have grown numb to the the kind of horrible news that's happening, because I think that's the flip side of it. Um, you know, when the uh, Uvalde school shootings happen. I was on the road and I was facilitating workshops and doing going to different events. So I, I felt like I was too busy to really pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. And so when I got home a few days after that, I actually took intentional time to read the stories of each one of those children mm-hmm. and to let go of some tears and to really grieve. Because I think the flip side of it is oftentimes we get numb to all of this news that we stop allowing it to land in our hearts. And I think there's a danger in that too, right? So I think it's really important just to discern for yourself, when is it the skillful time to draw a boundary and say, I'm actually not going to pay attention to the news? And when is it a skillful time to say, you know what, I'm actually going to dive deeper and to allow myself to feel the grief of what is happening in the world. And so, you know, I think it's it's different kind of things are required for different moments for different people, but for all of us to really try to be in constant discernment about what is the thing that, I, that I'm needing right now. That distinction is so rich. I'm so glad we're having this conversation. The ability to dive into the pain, into the grief, um, it's something that American culture, at least, it has not offered us skills around and um, contributes to emotional immaturity in our culture, I really truly believe. Uh, Another workshop I did while I was out in California, my goodness, (laughs) there's so much going on out there, was Saban Fusome's grief workshops. Awesome. So, you know, this was her sharing her lineage of communal-wide space to yell, scream, cry, shake and be witnessed and being held and um, that it was the community's process it wasn't just one individual and when one individual is in pain it does infect everybody so get together hold that space go through it together so i have gratitude for you sitting down and crying over those children that is important for everyone thank you for doing that for me i really do i feel that in my body Um, And just the invitation for people to go there, I think so often we feel like it's not safe. Our body goes into freeze or Mm -hmm. flight or whatnot, but there is something in our nervous systems that can often say that sadness and fear is not safe, avoid it at all costs. And you and I know that that is not, the end result is not health. It is not happiness it really does infect us and everyone around us so the picture you paint of intentional space I think is so important because I know you know when people say I'm going to turn off the news then they just go to TikTok or scrolling through social media and other stuff and still they're harming their nervous system they're actually not creating a space of healing so the idea of going off into the woods or creating time to cry and actually letting yourself process that and heal like healing's not just this sweet idea 
or, or what happens when time passes, there actually is something that occurs for healing to happen. So you painted that really, really skillfully. Yeah, and, and intention really matters in these practices, right? Like crying actually isn't always that healing or, or isn't as healing as it could be. Um, even going into the woods isn't as healing as it could be without the right intention, right? So like if, if I'm giving myself intentional explicit space to cry, that can be a really beautiful and healing thing. If I, you know, I used to, I, I, I used to have a dog and I used to always, you know, cause we used to have to walk her all the time. And oftentimes it was just like a chore that I had to do. But every once in a while, I told myself, you know what? I've been working for a long time. I'm going to take my dog out on a walk and I'm going to really enjoy the air. I'm going to try to feel the sun on my, uh, on my body. And those 10, 15 minutes when I was walking the dog because of the intention, even though I was doing the same exact thing, it was more healing for me, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, again, it's important for us to be intentional and explicit about um, the times that we're giving ourselves to, to engage in these healing modalities. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If, you know, somebody is crying over something they're frustrated about and they're yelling and screaming and judging themselves and judging other people, there's no healing happening. Yeah. They're just upset. Whereas when you set this sacred space, this intentional space, our, our subconscious, our conscious mind categorizes it differently. Our bodies yeah. respond differently. Definitely. So uh, how about, what's the difference between non-violence and non-hyphen violence it's huge this is something i learned from my time in the world of kingian non-violence which is a philosophy developed out of the teachings of dr martin luther king but within that framework um we never hyphenate the word when we use non-violence because when you hyphenate the word it separates the word and it makes it into two words essentially right something is not violent or something is the absence of violence and that's the biggest and most dangerous misunderstanding of the concept of nonviolence is that people think as long as I'm not being violent, that I'm not hitting somebody, then I'm a nonviolent person. Um, and the, the story that I always tell with that is, you know, about 10 years ago, I was taking a nap um, in my home and there was a fight going on outside. I was woken up by it. And there was a couple who were arguing and yelling at each other. And I lived in a neighborhood where, you know, people screaming was a pretty daily occurrence. So I was just trying to ignore it and go back to sleep. But this fight kept escalating. And by the time I looked out the window, there was a woman on the ground who was getting beat and she was screaming for help. So I jumped up out of my bed and ran downstairs. And by this point, they had gone across the street. So I ran across the street and I broke up this fight. And by the time I got down there, about 15 of my neighbors had come outside and they had all heard the commotion. So they came outside and they were just standing around watching this woman get beat, not doing anything to help. And I always argue that all of my neighbors who were just standing around watching were practicing non-hyphen violence, right? They were explicitly not being violent. And I think that's oftentimes what you see in our society today as we see ongoing climate catastrophe or rises in homelessness or school shootings or police killings of unarmed Black people. We see all of this violence and injustice and we look the other way and say, oh, that's none of my business. And we're innocent bystanders, right? And that's not what nonviolence is about. Nonviolence is not about being a bystander. Nonviolence is, is, is about 
putting yourself in the midst of that situation and doing what we can to transform violence, right? It's, it's, it's not about not being violent as much as it's a commitment to doing something about violence. And so there's a huge difference from our perspective when you hyphenate the word and you understand nonviolence simply as the absence of something as opposed to the presence of something or a commitment to doing something proactive. That is a very telling story. And it uh, brings up for me the word harm. Were they actually helping or harming by being nonviolent? Uh, I know you have some things to say about the word harm itself. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because when I started doing nonviolence trainings years ago, one of the, the things that we were constantly talking about is that we need to expand our definition of harm and our definition of violence. Because I think in many ways, historically, we only included physical acts of harm as forms of violence. And we needed to expand that definition to understand that words can be as harmful, if not more harmful and then there's all of these systemic forms of violence that is causing real harm that needs to be viewed as violence. Fast forward 20 years, I feel like we've actually gone a little too far almost. And Adrian Marie Brown talks about this in her book, um, We Will Not Cancel Us, where she says, we have a tendency to conflate conflict, harm, and abuse. And it's really hard for us to talk about what's actually happening and figure out appropriate responses to things when everything from actual abuse to a microaggression is all conflated into the word harm. And so when we say in our society today, in our culture today, that harm is happening, I think it's really important to be really clear and discerning, like what is it that we're talking about is it a conflict that happened between two people or is it abuse and is it um, abuses of power and is it um, power dynamics that are playing out in really harmful ways? Like, I think there is a difference and I think it's important for us to understand the difference and to really be able to, to understand what is the appropriate response based on what the incident is that we're talking about. It seems to me that because trauma and harm was so um, ignored for so long or just that people were blind to it for so long. Now that we're becoming privy to it, it's being thrown everywhere because, uh, because there was such a long span of time where it wasn't being addressed. So yeah. it's being slapped on everything as, it's almost like we're toddlers learning to walk. We're like, whoa, there is harm, there is trauma. And instead of learning the nuances and getting really skilled and equipped with it, we're just labeling it everywhere to almost in an effort to protect ourselves. Um, and just as you've been describing, it's like a pendulum and um, you know, what is dangerous, what isn't and, and navigating that in our own dysregulated nervous systems, because things can feel much bigger than they actually are. And part of that personal development work in this space is learning, am I overreacting underreacting or having an appropriate response. Yeah. And I think you were speaking to that with the anger, like it's an appropriate response to be angry. Are you using it as a catalyst or are you using it to keep yourself and the situation stuck and, and being exacerbated? Yeah. And, and I think there's another dynamic that's happening too, which is that, you know, I mentioned earlier, like, I think we're living in really traumatizing times or traumatized times, right? There's, 
I mean, everything from the advent of social media, which again is just bombarding us with with trauma, and the advent of um, cell phones with video cameras, which like police killings have been happening forever, but now we're mm-hmm. constantly seeing videos of it mm-hmm. and videos of violent hate crimes. And then there's the escalating climate catastrophe, and then there's the 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 pandemic, and there's the last presidency. You know, one of the things that I was talking about is how. Um, you know, so many particularly white identified folks were saying they feel inspired by Trump. And as someone who does a lot of work with trauma, when I look at Donald Trump, I see a deeply traumatized individual. Like it's so obvious. It's mm-hmm. so obvious that he's so deeply traumatized and wounded. And I think having and and I think a lot of his wounding is really representative of the trauma that white male Americans carry. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think having someone who is so clearly operating from that particular brand of trauma in such a public space woke up the trauma of an entire nation. And so I feel like a lot of the people who were saying that they feel inspired by him, I don't know if it's inspiration as much as some weird sort of like trauma bonding that was happening and it was awakening their trauma. And it's like, oh, I can resonate with what's happening, what he's expressing. And so I think in the political left and the political right, everyone is experiencing trauma. And when we're experiencing a trauma response, the slightest thing can feel like a threat to our lives, right? Because we are operating from our amygdala, we're operating from the reptilian complex where everything is black and white and everything is either a threat to our lives or it's not. It's very polarized, it's very black and white. And so I think that's a lot of what we're witnessing is because we are witnessing so much collective trauma response and we're just swimming in that everything begins to really feel like it is a threat to our lives even when it's not and so i think our ability in collective spaces to learn to breathe together right like i think um traditionally when you go to a non-violence training you learn how to do blockades and work with the police and work with the media and all that but i think we really need to be practicing like okay how are we going to breathe together as we're in these frontline spaces and i think those things that begin to regulate our nervous system and reconnect us with our 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 prefrontal cortex like those things are really important in social change work so on point with all of that and that piece of that trauma bonding just being validated right yeah. Oh my God, I exist or my trauma or my pain or whatever he's going through that's within me. Oh my God, it exists. And so in these spaces, um, oftentimes with, um, you know, good active listening, we can validate the other. And instead of just spewing our upset unintentionally out of control, getting to a space where we are aware of our own responses able to speak on our behalf, advocate for one another, have healthy boundaries and be in a dialogue with people is so needed. And unfortunately not a very common skill um, these days. I'm not sure it ever was, but what I am inspired by is that trauma and and nervous system regulation is becoming a very common theme and that people are learning about healthy boundaries. You know, many of us did not grow up in homes where boundaries were offered or modeled. And so I am inspired by the um, abundance of people I'm hearing 
starting to talk about these topics. And I think, you know, it's easy to feel overwhelmed and expect overnight change. And especially as somebody you've been working, I think in this field for over 20 years, um, it, I mean, I commend you for sticking at it because we're not seeing overnight change. We're not seeing over decades change. It really is, um, you know, uh, an intentional lifestyle. And I think you can probably um, uh, identify the same way I do is that what's the purpose of living if we're not continuing in this process of moving forward toward what, what we hold, you know, as our core values. Yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> you, you mentioned boundaries too, and I just want to touch on that as well, because I think, um, I, I, you know, I was joking about this a while ago with some friends. It's like, I don't know that I know a single person who actually does boundaries well, because like you said, like none of us have been taught that. Um, so I agree with you that I'm so excited that there's all of these resources and conversations happening around that now. And one of my favorite quotes on boundaries is from Prentice Hemphill, who says, uh, boundaries are the distance at which I can love both you and me. And I was talking about this with my partner recently, who was saying that, you know, it's really important for people to remember in that quote that it's the distance at which I can love both you and me and like both of us. And, and my partner, she was saying that oftentimes in conversations about boundaries these days, it's seen almost like drawing a boundary is the end goal. Like if mm. I can draw a boundary with this person, then I'm done. Mm. And again, that there's a, a, a delusion in that because again, that, falls outside of the worldview of interdependence, right? Like we live in an interdependent world and there is nothing we can do to actually separate ourselves from other living beings. And so, you know, it's this kind of non-dual truth. Another restorative justice facilitator who's a, a dear friend and one of the people that I respect the most in the field, Sonia Shah, oftentimes says that like drawing boundaries and creating space between you and another person is sometimes the best thing you can do in the moment to come back into right relationship. Mm -hmm. But the intention is to come back into right relationship at some point, right? And, and that might be generations later. And being in right relationship takes two, right? Like the other side, if the other side isn't ready, then that's not possible. But to always do the work of boundaries in a way that you're moving yourself towards a place where you can offer meta and loving kindness and goodwill to the other person as well with the possibility of coming back into right relationship. I think it's, it's really important that we don't forget that that's the ultimate goal. I love those quotes. When you, people are heal, uh, healing codependency, setting boundaries can often feel like they're doing something wrong. And I love to look at it the way you're expressing it, that it's for the health of the relationship. Yeah. And, you know, I try to give my clients the metaphor of uh, children or a dog that they thrive with structure and adults can't read each other's minds. And we're all so different and complex. So if we're not telling another adult how we need to be treated, the relationship's not as healthy as it can be. So it's actually a service to the other to let them know what we need. It's up to them to respect it and it's up to us to walk away if they don't yeah. but that boundary is for the right relationship and so if one person needs space they both need space mm -hmm. and oftentimes people if they put up a boundary somebody else could lash back out because they don't recognize that but we're looking at the organism of the two people or more people and it's to restore health and right relationships. So I love the way you tied in those quotes and, and express that as well. It's 
so important to think about things these ways. And it's not natural. It's not the way we, our culture uh, displays it to us. So as young children, we were being um, conditioned to think otherwise. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many ways in which we've been conditioned that have become unconscious that we don't even realize, right? Fish swimming in water. Ah, this was such a beautiful conversation. I'm so grateful to you. And I'm wondering, you know, what ways um, can people get involved if, if this is either something that's been on their mind or this is the first time they're thinking about it? Um, what resources or um, programs are you offering or are uh, resources are available to people to just kind of take the next step forward? Because we really, that's all we can do is the next step, the next step, the next step. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the work that I'm doing happens under the umbrella of the East Point Peace Academy. So people can check out eastpointpeace.org. Um, East Point is also one of the organizations, several organizations around the country and lots of individuals who are starting to launch this thing called the Fierce Vulnerability Network, which is a network of people engaged in direct action at the center of climate justice and racial healing with a real heavy trauma healing lens. Um, so that's a thing that's happening all over the country. People can check out thefvn.org. Um, and, you know, reach out to your community. Like, I think a lot of the work that we're doing is going to resonate with a lot of people, but it's probably not going to resonate with everybody. But there's so many resources out there. And so finding the place that works for you, um, because there is a place out there. You might need to look for a little while, but I think for all of us to find a place where you can feel a sense of belonging and feel like your gifts can really be honored and uplifted. Um, but just, yeah, go out there and, and, and find a community. And even if it's just two or three people, try to engage in this work in whatever way it works for you. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to share before we conclude today? Yeah, just, you know, it's, it's a really hard time we're living in right now, right? The last three years we're just talking about, like the last three years has been so crazy. And I really do, but it's actually um, the, the old adage about the Chinese character for crisis and opportunity being the same. It's actually not true, but it's still a true um, point that it's trying to make, right? That as we are going to continue to witness more crises, more new pandemics, more climate catastrophes, there are huge opportunities in that. There's going to be a lot of suffering and that's going to be real, but there's also going to be huge opportunities for us to restructure society at a scale that we that is unimaginable to us now. And so I think so much of the work that we're doing now is just to be ready to take advantage of those opportunities as much as possible. So we really just need to prepare ourselves and to get ready and to yeah, prepare to, to breathe together. You know? Thank you so much. I'm feeling validated and inspired. I hope uh, you listeners are too. If this resonates with you or you feel like it's important to share with somebody else, please do. I will link uh, Kazu's um, contact information and the resources he mentioned in the show notes. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, and yes. um, looking forward to talking to you next time. That's it. Bye. Okay, thank you for listening and becoming part of this community. If you love this episode, I invite you to subscribe, share with someone you think would appreciate it, or leave a review. This helps me to learn what resonates with you so I can deliver more of what you want and reach more people who can benefit from this content. 
If you want to reach me, please feel free to reach out on my website, www.beccaspirit.com. I would love to hear from you, get any feedback, and know what's on your mind. Until next time, take great care.